In Europe this week, there was something akin to a populist uprising, and it had to do with soccer. The drama started Sunday night, when 12 of the biggest European soccer teams said they were setting up a new exclusive league. They called it the Super League. In a move that could have seismic consequences. On this proposed Super League. The Super League. With the proposed Super League. Super League. For a new Super League. The question is, what happens next? We're talking about the most popular sport on earth. We're talking about the most popular clubs in the most popular sport. It's Real Madrid. It's Manchester United. Man United, for instance, claims over a billion fans, which is a crazy number. That's our colleague Joshua Robinson, who covers European sports. All of these teams, what they've done is rejected basically a hundred years of tradition, saying we want to play more games against each other in a way that makes more money for us. Because there is a lot of money to be made from soccer. This is a sport that rakes in billions of dollars in TV rights, merchandise, and stadium ticket sales. But there was one thing the owners of those big clubs didn't take into account. Soccer fans would find the idea of a Super League repulsive. Super League, you just want, you got billions. You got billions as it is, you just want more. You greedy gits. But just days later, the fans had won, and the Super League was dead. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, April 23rd. Coming up on the show, how fans blew up an audacious plan to remake the business of soccer. This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. Distractions happen, but there are things that can help you stay focused, like the fully electric seven-seater Volvo EX90. It was made to help keep you and those around you on the road safe, with LiDAR technology that can see what you sometimes can't, and a two-camera driver understanding system designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Visit volvocars.com US to learn more. In Europe, soccer runs deep. It goes beyond just the sport of it. The teams are deeply connected to the communities around them. They're not franchises. They're not teams like in American sports that can move around the country at the whim of an owner. They're parts of neighborhoods. They've been there for a century. They were often formed by people of the local community working in factories. And so everything that takes clubs a little bit further away from that history, fans live as an insult. And the way teams compete is part of that history. The structure of European soccer has been the same for roughly 100 years. Every country has what it calls domestic leagues that are separated into divisions. There is a top division in every country, and the worst teams in that division get bumped down at the end of the season to a lower division, with the best teams from the lower division coming up and replacing them. That's the system they call promotion and relegation. So every country has those, but for the very cream of the crop in each country, there is another tournament called the Champions League, and that is to determine who is the best team in Europe. 
So you take the top four teams from England and the top few from Spain and Italy and, and every other country in Europe, mix them together, and what you get is a tournament that runs over the course of 10 months. They play under the lights on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, and it really crackles with excitement because that's when you get these rare matchups between the biggest names in soccer. The Champions League runs parallel to the domestic leagues, but on different days. It's hugely popular and has generally worked well. For the club owners, those big matchups are highly lucrative. For the fans, they get to watch some great soccer. Fans like Tim Payton. I've had a season ticket since I was 11 years old. I grew up less than a mile from the ground in an area called Highbury, which is... The- Tim is a lifelong and passionate Arsenal supporter. He's so passionate, he's on the board of a group that represents Arsenal fans. And he says there's nothing quite like watching his team play in the Champions League. European football is special. It's always at nighttime because it's always played midweek. And football under the floodlights at night, it's just got a slightly different atmosphere. The fact that you normally play a a club from a different country and that brings a different cultural approach to the team that visit, the supporters that visit, or you get to go if you travel into European countries. So there's a whole experience of the trip to enjoy. But another reason Tim says it's special is because a spot in the Champions League isn't guaranteed. When I first started going, Arsenal had a very fallow period in the mid-80s and attendances fell and the football was really poor. It didn't look like having any chance of success. And then a good manager was brought in and managed to improve the team's fortune. You have your good years and your bad years. And, and, and that's part of the magic of being fans in England. It's magical because even after bad years, every team has a shot at becoming European champions. Our culture here is to have lots of clubs and you support them through thick and thin and they go up and down the leagues depending on their ability and sporting merit. And that is what you buy into. The dream is open to everybody. The dream really is open to everybody. Every once in a while, that dream comes true. An underdog will win enough games to secure a place in the Champions League. Here's Joshua. In 2016, a team called Leicester City, which had been promoted from the second tier of English soccer and had 5,000 to 1 odds against winning the Premier League. In 2016, it did that. And it was really something to behold because a whole fan base hadn't experienced that in a generation. Premier League champions 2016, the amazing Leicester City! Which meant that it qualified for the Champions League the next year. And it made a run into the knockout rounds. And all of a sudden, you had Leicester City hosting these big, glitzy European nights in the East Midlands. Joshua went with Leicester fans to Spain for a Champions League game in Seville. They had been such a Cinderella in the Premier League, and they kind of carried that through into Europe. And to see Leicester City travel to Seville with fans who had almost never been abroad for soccer. They brought thousands of them to Spain. And all day, you know, you had Leicester City fans just hanging out all over Seville until they marched as one to the stadium that night for what was really an electric atmosphere. That's what the Champions League is supposed to be about. 
But stories like Leicester City's are rare. Most of the time, it's just a handful of elite clubs like Manchester United, Real Madrid, and Arsenal that dominate the Champions League. And their owners depend on the league for a huge chunk of revenue. If you win the Champions League, which is the most prestigious club competition in the world, the best of the best against the best, you stand to earn upwards of $100 million for your team. The TV rights for the Champions League are worth roughly $3 billion a year. But the teams aren't guaranteed that money. Remember, only the top four teams make the cut. So each season, there's a risk that these big teams won't qualify. They might get knocked out by an underdog or just have a bad season. And in 2014, that happened to one of the Giants. Manchester United didn't play well, finished in the middle of the pack, and so it didn't go to the Champions League. Suddenly they realized they're not going to have access to that Champions League income the next year. That's tens of millions of dollars suddenly off the books. And where that leaves them is with a giant hole to report to investors because Man United is also listed on the New York Stock Exchange. That's the kind of thing that will affect your share price. And so what did they try to do? So that caused them to start discussing with the other powerful teams, having initial talks, very quiet ones, about how to find more ways to boost their income and make sure that income was safe, that they weren't leaving themselves open to the vagaries of one crummy season. And as those clubs kept talking, they came up with an idea that they thought could solve the problem of losing out. They would create their own league. What if we went and did our own thing? What if we just created something that we know people are going to watch because, come on, we're Man United. There'd be no qualifying. It would just be us, and we would sell the TV rights ourselves. That plan became the Super League. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow. Everyone's talking about AI. Everyone. But where do you start? How can it actually help your business? The ServiceNow platform brings intelligence into every corner of your company. So every person, every system, every process, everything works better. Put AI to work. Tap the banner or go to servicenow.com slash genai to see how. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. The first details about the Super League emerged late on Sunday night. Just a second. We do want to fill you in on a story that is breaking across the football world right now. Well, it appears this proposal of a European Super League, which poses an existential threat to football as we know it, is going ahead. Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal and Chelsea are among those understood to be among the 12 teams involved. It's 12 of the most ancient, storied, popular clubs ever to kick a soccer ball deciding we're going to create a new competition, we're going to leave behind the Champions League, and this is going to be the best of the best. And what makes this different is that those 12 teams are going to be in that league forever. 
You don't have to qualify for it based on merit or based on what you did last season. You're just always going to be there. This feels different. This feels real. And it just feels to me like almost a deal's done. What they want is to create a kind of little cartel where they have a monopoly on box office games, big marquee matches every week between the biggest clubs commanding the lion's share of TV money without wasting their time against littler teams in games that aren't as watched. What is the stated rationale that the founders of the Super League came out with? The founders of the Super League have managed to come out and say that this is to save soccer. They've said that COVID put all of them in extremely precarious financial positions. And that's true about soccer. One great misconception about the soccer business is that clubs which generate such huge revenue are extremely profitable. They're not. They're constantly on a financial knife edge. But they're saying that in order to rescue soccer, what they need to do is create an extremely lavishly funded money-spinning operation that generates as much money as possible. The reaction was immediate. Fans were furious. I'm absolutely appalled at the fact that football has come this far into the hands of greedy owners. They're leeching onto a club that fans have been building for over 100 years. It's going to ruin everyone's dream, everyone's game, and it's, it's just ridiculous. It's probably the worst thing that has happened that I can think of in the last maybe... 50 years, honestly, it's a disaster. For Tim, it was made worse by the fact that Arsenal, his beloved club, was one of the Super League teams. He felt like his team was betraying the thing he loved about soccer. On Monday, I really wondered if I could even go and watch my team anymore because the sporting institution was dead. I'd kind of thought that if they do go ahead with this, I will wear black to every game because it's a funeral, or I will lay a wreath on my seat. If it went ahead, I thought that Arsenal were dead to me. Can you explain that to me? Because it was a competition that we were going to be in every year, whatever happened, that we no longer had to qualify for. And so that completely eroded our whole cultural experience of football, as I explained earlier, which is based on sporting success. The view of myself, and I think pretty much every single fan that follows our game, our league, would be you qualify for the Champions League by coming in the top four places in the league. Tim and thousands of fans from other teams quickly began to mobilize against the Super League. That involved... All sorts of activity, social media campaigning, removing banners from stadiums, protests outside stadiums. We've organized an email blitz of the club chief executives. I think every national newspaper in this country carried it as front page and back page story for two days in a row. It was extraordinary amount of pressure. It was the biggest political story outside of COVID for a year. What message were you trying to send with all those actions? Stop, capitulate. It won't work. We won't buy the tickets. We'll put pressure on the government to legislate against you. We will destroy your reputations. We we were starting to target the players directly. Increasingly, the players were themselves making statements against it. We were starting to go after the sponsors. We will do a lot to defend our football, as you're now hearing. You know, anytime there's a hint of 
clubs trying to simply enrich themselves at the expense of, you know, the game's traditions, the reaction is always the same, particularly in England, a country that is extremely attached to the kind of authenticity and the history of its football teams. Top politicians jumped into the fray. French President Emmanuel Macron denounced the move. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson threatened legislation in Parliament to stop the Super League from happening. The backlash got so intense that by Tuesday afternoon, some of the Super League clubs started to get cold feet. Things started to unravel Tuesday evening when Chelsea was playing its home game against Brighton. Fans had gathered outside the stadium for a protest. But by then, word had started to leak out that Chelsea might actually be drawing up papers to withdraw from the Super League. And so the protest turned into a party on the street in West London as they thought their club had finally been the one to to stand up to this idea. Manchester City was the next club to go. By the end of the night, six of the 12 clubs had pulled out of the Super League, and the plan fell apart. Fans rejoiced. How do you feel now that the plans for the Super League have been suspended? Delighted. Delighted. We have seen off those awful, rapacious investors who wanted to screw English football fans for nothing more than their own profit. I am delighted, absolutely delighted and ecstatic. How does it feel to know that it was the fans that made this happen, that spelled the end of the Super League? It's quite empowering, and increasingly fans are working together, fans of other clubs. Normally we're great rivals, and, you know, historically, sometimes we might be more likely to have a scrap rather than work together on a lobbying campaign. And there's still an awful lot of rivalry and banter and putting each other down, and you absolutely hate the other team and don't want them to win. But I think we're increasingly realising that when we mobilise, we're a powerful lobby. What's interesting now, as far as the owners are concerned, is they were clearly dissatisfied with the system as it was set up because they felt there wasn't enough room for growth. And that's what they're in this business for. So I think there are questions now as to how long these 12 owners, who are badly chastened and also now frustrated at the prospects for their clubs, will think that they belong in European football. So what do you make of this whole Super League saga? It was quite surprising, really, just how unprepared the uh, Super League clubs were for this. When they thought they could come at this with the power of their brands, with the 12 of them together, and thinking they were bigger than football, they thought that was enough, but they weren't prepared for the backlash from politicians. They weren't prepared for the backlash from fans. And when all that happened, they just didn't have a response. I think it's really a case of the old Mike Tyson line, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's all for today, Friday, April 23rd. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. And listeners, are you Jeopardy fans? If so, we have a question for you. Who do you think should be the show's next host? 
please email us your response and tell us why. Our email is thejournal at wsj.com. That's thejournal at wsj.com. In today's episode, we had additional audio from King Paul AFC, Riyadh Dilhan, and El Usher Bastar via Storyful. Your hosts are Ryan Knutson and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is produced by Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Godkari, Martin Kessler, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Novetsky, Enrique Perez, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rose Strasser, and Rob Zipko. Today is Rob's last day with us. Rob, thanks for all your hard work. Good luck on your next adventure, and we'll miss you. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Mixing help this week from Emma Munger. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Marcus Bagala, Bobby Lord, Peter Leonard, Emma Munger, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.